This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 627. We welcome John T. Hall and John Lapoterre. We're going to talk about roofing-related water damage issues and roofing in general, roofing and indoor environmental quality. Looking forward to a great part two show on roofing and a couple of the Moisture Mob members joining us again. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. Please let your sponsors know you appreciate their support of IAQ Radio. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at restorationindustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com, Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc. at tsi.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Frank Mortal III, Clarkston, Michigan, who identified North Dakota in the year 1931 as the first coronavirus incident in the United States. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, May 21st, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IQ Radio Trivia question. What is the main determining factor on the type of roofing you have on your home? Back to you, Joe. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. John T. Hall has 25 plus years in the roofing and coatings industries. He's a recognized authority on roof restoration and moisture detection within the roof and building envelope. Mr. Hall has provided technical support training and consulting in over 30 countries. His expertise in roofing restoration has contributed to roofing projects at NFL stadiums, airports, universities, hospitals, military bases, and even the White House. Mr. Hall's background includes being the former president and operator of Hall Roofing and the global sales and technical director for Sherwin-Williams Roofing Solutions Group. John Lapoterre, 
Together with his wife, Lydia, they have owned and operated Orlando, Florida-based indoor air quality solutions since 2001. John is an indoor environmental consultant specializing in indoor air quality assessments, forensic water intrusion investigations, mold and odor investigations, and building envelope failure investigations. He is currently serving as the IAQA immediate past president, and he has served as an expert witness in court cases involving indoor air quality, mold, building envelope failure, building product failure, and spray polyurethane urethane foam insulation. And he has provided consultation and testimony in several hundred litigation cases. Welcome to the show, guys. Great to have you both back. Great to be Thank here. You. John T. Hall, first show we did. Excellent stuff. Good background stuff. I'd like to go over a couple of things with you real quick and then add on to them. So, John, let's put up the first slide. All right. So we, we talked about the different problems that, you know, roofs that occur with roofs. Um, and we also talked about the roof inspection process and that it needs to be consistent and repeatable. And when I went back through Cliff's blog, I said, wow, this is really a nice summary of the right way you know, to do a roofing inspection, um, understand the building use, the type of roof, uh, influencing factors, walk the entire roof and, and mark your visual problems, calibrate your instruments, establish the dry standard and then survey the roof, mark problem areas, do it on Google Earth, create accurate diagrams and then apply the ASTM standard. I'd like to focus a little more on establish the dry standard and then survey the roof, John. Can you kind of give us a little more detail on how you do that? No, absolutely, Joe. And again, thanks for having, having me today. So, you know, unfortunately, I see a lot of people that will purchase equipment, meters, you know, whatnot, and they go out and they turn them on and then they just start scanning. Um, you know, and unfortunately, they may or may not be getting accurate results. So really establishing that dry standard with, you know, isolating a, a location on the roof um, and taking quantitative measurements to determine that that spot is dry and then setting your equipment based on that dry standard is critical because all of these these scanners the impedance scanners the deck scanner um, those give you relative readings so you know it's going to be relative to where you set the sensitivity and, and if you didn't set it on a known dry area then you're going to have incorrect readings so so what we do when we start a survey is we kind of visually assess the roof um, find an area that we believe is most likely to be dry, you know, higher, higher on the slope, away from curbs, drains, things like that. Um, then we'll actually take a core cut of the roof, two inch cut down to the deck. Um, we'll pull that core out so we know what type of roof system and, and what's lurking below the surface, if you will, because you may have one roof, you may have two, who knows what you have. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then we'll actually use a, a moisture meter with seven inch, seven inch insulated probes, sorry, tongue twister there, um, to take quantitative readings to determine, you know, what's our moisture, wood moisture equivalent in that spot. And then we'll set the meter sensitivity to that on that spot. Okay. John, uh, John Faith, can you pull up a, a couple of those uh, graphics we looked at earlier? Let's, let's take a look because this isn't your typical, you know, moisture meter that a restoration guy or an IAQ guy would have, um, you know, doing typical indoor air quality type work. Let's, let's start with, uh, this is the insulated pin you mentioned, the seven to eight inches. Exactly. And, and it's important, you know, so we'll start the survey with one of these, you know, taking 
uh, an actual moisture content reading. We'll do it throughout the core. You know, I want to know what's it look like under the roof membrane and the insulation at the facer of the insulation down towards the deck. Because obviously there are a lot of layers in there and you can have, that'll also give you an indication of where any moisture might be trapped. But we want to get a good low dry reading, you know, um, and it, per ASTM, your, your wood moisture equivalent, you know, is basically anything under 20% on, on the meter is going to be considered dry. 20 to 24.9 is going to be damp and anything 25% and over is going to be wet. So we want to make sure we're getting down there in that 7, 10, you know, even 15% range so that we can set our, our, our baseline for our relative readings there. Yeah. So that'll attach to the top. And as you can see, this meter in particular, it gives you a nice digital readout. Um, that's showing a 4%. When you, uh, and then down at the bottom, you're getting your, your temperature, relative humidity, dew point, you know, all those, all those uh, important numbers that you also need to have as well. So, so that pin attaches to that meter or some other meters like that. Um, and then that's used at the beginning of, of the survey. And then we also use that throughout. Um, you know, anytime you're doing a, a moisture survey, whether you use an infrared, impedance, any of these methods, it's, it's critical to use some destructive testing to verify your results. And, and that's how you do that. You'll, you'll periodically um, use those probes to take measurements to make sure you know, what you're seeing in your visually with the infrared or even with the impedance meter, um, you want to, you want to quantify, you know, you want to, you want to take that from a qualitative reading to a quantitative reading. Okay. Let's go to the uh, other meters that we looked at, John, earlier. Here we go. All right. So, this so is that's the deck scan. Okay. Tell me about this, John. So after we set our dry standard, we'll take that device and we'll set it on that area there's a control panel on there with some, I'm going to call them some macro settings and some micro settings. So we actually will, will adjust the sensitivity so that right there. Yep. Um, so that we're on that known dry area, we're, we're kind of right, just kind of tapping the zero, if you will. So we've set that baseline. And then as we, as we do our survey, if we have any levels of elevated moisture from where that baseline or that known dry area was, they'll read um, as higher moisture relative to that spot. So that's why it's critical that you, you establish this on your known dry area, because if you set this up and start it on an area that's damp or wet, um, you may not, you know, you may not get any readings. So you'll, you'll be missing moisture. Um, yeah. And it's kind of funny. There are times when you've got a roof that's basically, you know, you can't find a dry area. So you kind of, yeah. you kind of go in reverse. Um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll take your moisture reading and, and you maybe set your sensitivity to uh, the middle of that scale. And then you watch for your needle to go down indicating a dry area that might exist. Um, that, that does happen. So. Okay. And then there was another meter here, John, let's go to that other uh, scan impotence meter. Uh, this one. Yeah. Now this one. Yeah, and that basically meters. operates the exact same way as the deck scanner. Um, it's just a, a smaller handheld meter. So this is great for, getting in kind of hard to reach areas, walls, you know, um, you can do it building exteriors, you can do parapet walls, interior walls. Um, this is a, a handy, you know, there's an example right there. Um, and, and, and John will address this in, in a much greater degree. You know, there are times when we see, um, if we're trying to isolate the source of water intrusion, there may be a penthouse on top of a roof, an elevator penthouse or something like that. And, and your water intrusion may be coming from that, you know, a vertical surface on that, on that penthouse, not actually 
you know, coming in through a breach in the roof. So right. that helps that, that meter sure helps you uh, try to isolate um, sources of water intrusion. Okay. Let's get John Lapotera jump in here. Anything you'd like to add to what we just talked about? No, I think uh, he, he hit the nail on the head with needing to establish a dry standard. We see a lot of people will just put a meter on a wall and go, aha, it's wet. Um, it, it's critical. And the two meters that you're showing there, the, the green one and the yellow one, those two meters are, are money. The, the green one I use quite a bit. And the, the beautiful thing about that is you can set the depth sensitivity and you can dial it into zero or 100, which is critical. People don't realize that if I'm scanning a multi-layer hardwood floor that might be on sleepers, I can set it to 100% at ground zero and quickly scan my way to dry. And it's a lot easier than starting from dry and trying to figure out where it's going. I can track water down and where the water's going with that uh, roof and wall scanner, RWS roof and wall scanner, um, very easily. Comes with a nifty little handle. We were talking before the show that uh, my son's working at a, a YMCA and uh, he used this scanner to track the extent of the water damage, and uh, he's got the, the floor back down. So this thing's invaluable, and to be able to zero it out to zero and scan to wet or start from ground zero and set it at 100 and scan to dry is critical. Dry standards are, are key in everything that we do. Okay. Uh, let's, John, let's go to the second slide. There we go. All right. Now. Some of the problems, we, we just went over some basic problems, but I think these kind of lead into a little better conversation. They should be designed to shed water. Foot traffic, I noted that one again. I'm like, you know what, that's a really good point. But sometimes they put things on the roof that you walk on as well, I guess, and that's probably a good idea, John. Um, less redundancy, more prone to leaks. So if it's a single layer of, of any kind of covering, it's more prone to leaks. Does that sum it up pretty well there? No, absolutely. Um, you know, to your point, I know, John, you're going to show some case studies. We were talking before the show about, you know, installing crickets and saddles and things like that. You know, if you have a, you know, a little short cricket or you have um, dead valleys, negative slope, things like that, that's, that's not good design. I mean, at the end of the day, we want to get the water off the roof. I mean, guys can put pookie and bull and caulk and sealant and all this, you know, at the end of the day, but um, the, the proper thing is to get the water off the roof. Um, and, you know, foot traffic, I, I see this. We've got a client with a roof um, down in South Texas right now. It's an old, um, it's an old uh, uh, big box portion of a shopping mall and uh, they've acquired it and it has a single ply roof on it, but there's been, you know, there's a ton of AC units up there, mechanical units. There's been a lot of service and, uh, and, and they're just fighting leaks. And at the end of the day, you know, that's a single ply roof. So there's no redundancy. Um, you know, tradespeople have been up there. They've been walking all over it. And, and it's just kind of beat this roof up where, you know, if you have a roof that has walk pads in place, has designated areas, you know, it's going to be thicker there. It's going to be more impact resistant there. Or even if they use um, multi-layer uh, or redundant type roof systems like modified bitumen, where, you know, you have a base sheet, a cap sheet, things like that, you'll have a lot um, uh, more tolerable to wear impacts, people dropping tools, dropping AC panels, you know, things like that. That's, that's, Definitely, um, definitely a big factor in, in how long a, a roof's going to last. I mean, there's there's studies I share all the time that have studied different, you know, basically all the roof systems out on the market, and and given the geography and foot traffic and all that kind of things, you know, roofs that are 
sold with 20-year warranties. If you've got regular foot traffic up there and you don't have active semi-annual roof maintenance, uh, that roof's probably going to be toast in, in 12, 13, 14 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's real important to have, you know, um, control foot traffic, try to control where the foot traffic goes um, and have active, uh, you know, roof maintenance programs in place. Okay. And the other thing I noted is geography is a big factor. That goes to Cliff's trivia question to some degree, I think, as well. Um, how much, you know, if I put a, the same roof in the, in a cold climate versus a hot climate, how much am I going to lose as far as the durability of that roof? Well, definitely the UV, you know, like for example, a roof in Denver, a mile high is going to, is going to have a lot more UV exposure than a roof in, um, you know, at sea level. Now, so those roofs, believe it or not, a lot of people think they just think about southern roofs, coastal roofs, things like that. But UV degradation is probably one of the number one uh, contributing factors to, to reducing the lifespan of a roof. So um, altitude, climate, obviously on the coast, we have, you know, severe weather events with we have a lot of abrasion weather. I mean, you know, we've got sand, we got wind, we got hurricanes, tropical storms. You know, in a lot of the, the country, we have hailstorms. Um, that's a big, big factor. Um, so impact resistance of a roof system, um, redundancy comes into play. So there are a lot of factors, you know, out in California, they have, you know, out west, they have wildfires. So flammability of a roof yeah. system comes into play. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of factors to consider when deciding on, you know, what the best roofing material or best roofing system for your building use in your geography may be. Let's go to Cliff. I think he's got to follow up and then we'll go to John Lapp up there. Yeah, you, you, you guys both live in Florida and, you know, Florida, it's a tropical climate. So you can have fungal growth. You can have algal growth, uh, you know, on the roof. Um, what is your opinion on roof cleaning? Uh, should, you know, should it be done? Do those chemicals damage uh, the roofing materials or just your thoughts? John T. Okay, so on um, on low slope commercial roofs, it absolutely should be a part of you know the the scheduled maintenance on that roof. Um, you know, every two or three years, that that roof should be should be clean, scrubbed. Now, obviously, there are certain chemicals you need to avoid. Certain methods, you know, high high pressure water injection is not always the smartest thing. Um, really, a a, a proper um, non harsh cleaning chemical with with lighter pressure see a lot of folks using uh you know the scrubbers that that get on the pressure washers that go around those are nice so you know for my and metal obviously um shingles i'm not real sure i mean i think that that has has improved i know at first um i had some uh when i first started seeing people doing this i had some uh concerns about it just because of some of the chemicals um but uh a lot of chlorine yeah, yeah i mean there's there's a lot of you know runoff you got some roofs you can cause additional zinc runoff. So, so John, you 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 probably work with uh, steep slope a little more than I do. So, I'd be curious to see your take on that. Uh, I do not like the use of chemicals on uh, asphalt roofing. Um, I don't mind the use of uh, chemical clean on the mini tile and slate roofs that we have in Florida, but uh, you have to be careful with what you use. Cliff, if you remember, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, I came to you with a problem where a roof cleaner used a bleach-based cleaner inside a multifamily uh, home, and you sent me a neutralizing chemical that we had to go back in and spray because all of the connectors 
were corroding. The same thing happens when those chemicals run down the side of a house. You end up with a lot of secondary problems. The roof might get rinsed off thoroughly, but there are areas that don't. So um, not a real fan on asphalt roofs. And uh, you really have to be careful with what you're using. Interesting. I got a text question. Uh, is there a time frame for roof life in different parts of the world? Let's try John T. on that one. Sorry, John. Uh, roof what? Roof lifespan, I guess, in oh. different parts of the world or different climates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the heat, um, the, the actually heat and um, the, uh, the, the hot cold, um, you know, that, that is a factor. Um, you got thermal shock and thermal expansion, things like that. But, yeah, I, you know, typically a, a roof in the, uh, you know, along the Mason-Dixon line, say, in the, in the United States, that has maybe less climate extremes, less of the, the heat and UV that you're going to get, you know, in, in Arizona or on the, in Florida, um, it, you would expect a longer lifespan out of that. Um, than you would some of those in more harsher climates. Absolutely. Okay. All right, John, let's go to the next slide. We're going to talk a little bit. I got one more I thought was really good from the first show here, John. That's this roof asset management. I didn't really think of it this way until you talked about it. That annual inspection, cleaning, replacement of sealants, very important. But repair, restoration, and replacement phase. I think you mentioned in the first show that people – tend to think they have to replace things maybe sooner than they should, that they could probably get a little more life out of it if they followed your recommendations here? Absolutely. You know, Joe, it's, it's kind of like owning a car. You know, I mean, from, from day one with that car, you're going to have maintenance. I mean, whether you're changing your oil every few thousand miles or whatever the case may be. And if you don't do that, you're going to drive that car until someday it's your motor's going to blow up and that's that. You got to go buy a new car. So, you know, buying a roof is no different. Um, you know, when people think I bought a new roof, I've got a 20 year warranty on it. I'm good. And they just kind of forget about it out of sight, out of mind. Um, so, but, but the repair and maintenance that starts at day one, you know, and more and more manufacturers are starting to require annual maintenance, annual inspections, documentation of those. Um, and that, you know, that includes anything from just basic, cleaning debris around drains, you know, every roof I go on, you'll see a Gatorade bottle stuck in a drain, or you'll see trash and debris and dead birds or whatever. You'll see, you know, sealant, um, sealant at, at termination bars and penetrations and things like that. I mean, the UV does take a toll on that. So from time to time, those, those things have to be refreshed and brought up to speed. So, so that repair phase starts at day one and it needs to be a regular planned you know, uh, operating expense basically for that building owner throughout the life of the roof. Now you get to a point where that roof starts getting towards the end of its expected life. Um, you know, if it's, if it's a 20 year roof, you know, and you've been doing annual maintenance on it and kind of taking care of it, when you start getting to you know, years 15, 17, 18, depending on what part of the country you're in, you need to start really looking at a restoration. And with a restoration, you know, that is where you come in, you do an assessment, um, do a moisture survey. Let's make sure we don't have, you know, water in the roofing materials and things like that. Um, and then we come in and, um, you know, upgrade the roof base. It's kind of like a major tune up on the car. You might put in some retrofit drains. You might fix or repair some flashings, refresh the sealants, um, put um, uh, waterproofing materials on seams on, you know, that type of thing, and then come in with a coating product and there's all kinds of coating technologies out there. There's acrylics and urethanes and silicones and, you know, all kinds of stuff. 
and depending on the building use and the building location, um, you will encapsulate that entire roof. And basically at that point, I, I kind of like to say you're you're putting that roof in a time capsule. You're, you're, you're stopping the UV degradation of the roof that's there. You're kind of tightening it all up and you're giving it a new lease on life. Um, and those restorations can be good for 10, 15, 20 years, and then you can come in and restore them again. So that's a great option. But unfortunately, a lot of folks don't understand about the repair and restore. So they just wait till, you know, the roof's gotten to a point where it's deteriorated, it's leaking, the insulation's saturated, heavily saturated with water. They may have decking issues. And then they get to the point where they don't have a choice but to tear it off and put a new roof on. And, and that's often double or more the cost of a restoration. Interesting. You had mentioned the John T in the first show, how much roofing goes into landfills every year and, and, and whether we could maybe cut back on that to some degree. I just thought I'd, I find that very interesting. It made me think, want to comment on that? Absolutely. Um, you know, there was a stat I saw by the NRCA, which is the National Roofing Contractor Association. I saw this stat over 10 years ago, and it was that um, over two thirds of the, the, these are low slope commercial roofs I'm talking about, but over two thirds of those roofs that were torn off could have actually been restored if that had been considered as an option and there had been some, you know, repair and maintenance up to that point. And that's that's huge. And as we go, I mean, look at the whirlwind right now um, with supply chain issues and, and, and yeah. fuel costs and transportation and, and even just trying to be more green. You know, when you tear off a roof, that roof goes to the landfill. Trucks take it there. You know, they're running up down the highway. They're burning fuel and they're filling up those landfills. The number one source of solid waste going into landfills is construction debris. And the largest percentage of construction debris going is roofing materials. So it's a tremendous waste and burden on our environment to keep tearing off these roofs, especially at the additional cost and material availability. I mean, I've got a client that's getting ready to tear off a roof and, and they're being told they can't get insulation or screws until August. Wow. So they've got an occupied building with leaks and you know hail damage and, and they're just having to try to hold this roof together for several more months because of material availability. Um, so, you know, and in a case like that, where you've got severe hail damage or a hurricane ripped the roof off, well, you don't have any choice, but, but in, in two thirds of the cases, you do have a choice. I'm glad we went back over that because when we did the first show, it wasn't as much, you know, the getting new materials wasn't as big of a deal. And within just what, six months or so, bang, that's a big issue. Hey, John Lapoteer, before we go to halftime, I got a text question. Major issues. Are there any major issues with residential metal roofs in a hot, humid climate like Florida? None that, that I see. It's a, a preferred roofing material. Uh, even in a coastal environment, um, I'm not sure if John T. feels different about it, but I haven't had any uh, issues with, with metal roofs in our climate zone. John T.? I agree 100%. Okay. Hey, John uh, Faith, let's go to um, John Lapotera's slides. Maybe we can get a, a quick at least uh, start on them before halftime here. So we're going to go into some uh, case studies that John Lapotera has been working on over the years, and we're going to get John Hall to jump in here from time to time as well and, and kind of talk a little bit about some cause and origin of water intrusion inspection. Let's go to the next one. And John, tell us what we've got here. Well, so this is a multi-million dollar house, new construction. Um, 
this particular client hired us because he had water coming in and nobody could figure out where. So if you're a building envelope consultant, you look at this house and you immediately see a lot of problems. The first of which is you have non-code compliant, thin stucco that's very obvious with the shadows in this picture. So we initially thought that it could be from uh, inadequate stucco coverage, but then you look at the amount of parapet walls that this residential home has, and you realize there's no crowning or parapet wall cap on any of the parapet walls. So there's a potential. And then you've got a little recessed ornamental thing on the parapet wall in the very front. So when we walk up to the house, we're just shaking our heads saying, this is just probably one of the most horrible designs. So uh, click to the next slide. This is the area where the water was coming in. It was actually coming out the lanai ceiling below here. And the, the potential contributors are all four of those windows that are right on top of the flashing. The design didn't allow enough room for a proper flashing. Um, you have a, a low slope valley to the right. You have an outside 90 degree flashed corner from stucco on the left. And then of course the transition between the second floor roof to the parapet wall and the uncapped parapet wall. So the potential was endless. Um, immediately we wanted access to the roof uh, the attic above that lanai, and we were told there was no access. Well, there's no such thing as no access. We're a saw away from access. I mean, <laughs> anybody that tries to tell me you can't go in is sadly mistaken. We're always going to go in. You'll find that is a, a common slogan for us. We're going in. In order to find the cause and origin of that leak, I need to look up from the attic. So we dug our way in. If you go to the next slide. Right. There's where it's coming out. Keep going. Okay. Keep going. It was raining. This was just showing some of the water. Okay. Oh, here we go. So they had insulated the lanai because they, they wanted to make sure that it was nice and cool in there. And this is where those seven-inch probes come into play. First, the water is going to come out somewhere, and it leaves these little discolored uh, areas. So we can probe those areas, and then from that area, we start tra tracking the moisture north until we get to where it's uh, starting, it's the, the origin. So if you click to the next slide, I think there's some more telltale signs. Well, that's where we dug in. Um, you always have to go in, but that's an indication of why you can't use thermal imaging. You can't use surface probes. you got to use the long probes. And that water was saturated. This is a piece of cardboard um, where water was coming down, and that was actually under the corner, um, the, the outside 90-degree corner. Next slide. Next slide. And this is us just tracking it in the different areas. The amount of moisture was tra trapped behind the foam. Once we opened it up, it was like pouring a bucket of water out in that attic. Next slide. So we ended up confirming that below the windows, there was inadequate uh, space for the roofer to successfully flash. And what we tell all of our, the contractors that we consult with, we consult with builders, air conditioning contractors, roofing contractors, stucco contractors. In this case, the, the roofing contractor should have stopped and said, I'm not going to try and make this work. There's no way for me to have an adequate transition for the flashing. But he didn't. He just cut the flashing down and, and made good with what he could. Uh, and obviously it didn't work. Um, oh, Lydia's texting that that was her in the attic. That is true. <laughs> um, she's our little attic dwelling critter. We shove her in small holes and she goes and investigates. <laughs> she's very very good at it though um, the number one circle over there was we confirmed that there was a leak at that 90 
And then there was another leak um, at the transition to the parapet wall, but no indication that the parapet wall itself was failing at this time. But we did recommend a parapet wall cap for everything in the property. By the way, that's a clear story room. So from the top roof down to the first floor is open. Those windows are simply open into that room. So it, it was kind of a hot mess, but that's a million dollar house, brand new. Um, this is the president of a production home builder bought this custom house from another builder. Wow. And uh, we had written a report for the president of the home builder and he wanted to hire us to figure out his house. Then we did in, in short order once we pulled Lydia out of the attic and uh, he was able to get his areas corrected. Interesting. John Hall, any, any uh, comments on this? Oh, other than it's unfortunate, but you see this kind of stuff all the time. Um, so it, it really is a shame. We, we, you wish people, to, you know, to your point, John, that, that roofer should have tapped the brakes and said, hey, we, we've got an issue here. Um, but, you know, there's there's construction schedules, there's pressure to get things done. And and unfortunately, people sometimes just just go. Yeah, it should have right. stopped at frame stage. They could have raised the windows. Yeah. Plenty of room. Raise the windows. Plenty of room to flash. Interesting. Hey, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. We're going to be back with another three or four or five excellent case studies. One of my favorite topics, kick out flashing is next. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research at CIRIscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at HB2021-America.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation,
for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our show. I got a note, by the way, John Lapoter. Why are are you in a moldy room, my wife said? (laughs) <laughs> i thought it was appropriate i've got a small roof leak over here we're going to look into that later today but they turned down the bed for me oh yeah thanks That's nice. all right let's go we're back with john hall and john lapoter let's go back to the let's go to the second case study john faith i got three johns today all right, so now we're going to talk one of my favorite topics, kick-out flashing, cause and origin, water intrusion inspection. Let's go to the next one. And, John, take it from here. So this is uh, one of the builders that we've been working for for, you know, the 20 years we've been in business. Outstanding custom builder, um, beautiful multi-million dollar house. Um, in the lower left corner, you can see the front door is in that turret. And to the left of that is the room with the reported odors. So in order to determine where it was coming from, of course, you start where the odors are. And we were able to rule out everything on that first floor. And then we went to the second floor and look at the roof. And by the way, this is this roof going from left to right is like a little walkway. There's an opening behind it, and the turret is clear all the way up. That front roof doesn't touch the turret. So we had to inspect the connection between the tile roof and the vertical wall in the, the front of the building. And then we moved to the windows, the stone sills, and it wasn't until we got to the turret that we found that the leak was coming from the turret, the wood frame circular turret, all the way down into the first floor room. If you go to the next slide, I think we can show that. So that little sucker right there, that's an unfortunate transition, um, a stucco transition right at the kickout, and we were leaking in front and behind the kickout, and it was going in and around that window that you'll see, I believe, in the next picture. Now you can oh, actually. Is there a kickout even there, John? Is is it just? It's a kickout. It's an inadequate, um, more of a uh, an asphalt roof kickout for tile roofs and turrets. We want an exaggerated site built um, kickout that comes out at least eight inches clear of the tile. Yeah. So this one's virtually non-existent. And so go to the next one. Of that, um, there was a uh, – uh, go ahead. Yeah, it's right at the uh, transition between – Yeah, it's right. It's a very in, unfortunate location. So this, this wall was uh, spray foam. And surface scanning, thermal imaging, none of that's going to work. You simply stab the hell out of this wall with your probe. And then we find it, and then we can track it down. And, of course, all these leaks are like a pyramid. They start at that one point, and they get wider, and they start wrapping around this turret. Um, And it went all the way down to the first floor. So the only way to find that is to actually know what a correctly installed kickout looks like, know what one failing looks like, and know where to make your first probe and then your openings. And, And you can see we never hesitate to open a wall. Next slide. And you can see it to been leaking. The, the builder asked me if I could determine duration. I said, sure. Give me the date the roof was installed. <laughs> <laughs> Next slide. 
you know, working its way down. This house had an unfortunate mural that we had to work around. And they also wanted to know if they could repair all of the damaged exterior sheathing from the inside. And I said, well, I'm a builder, but I'm, I'm not a magician. Not a magician. <laughs> There's absolutely no way to pull an elephant out of that hat. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so is this another one coming up? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, the next few are kickout flashings. And let me let me tell you why we're looking at kickout flashings when we're talking about roof leaks. So roof leaks are usually um, people tend to think of them as a spot in the ceiling. That's that's some real low-hanging fruit. I mean, those roof leaks, you see the spot in the ceiling, you go in the attic and you look up. And if you're in Florida, you then look down to see if it's condensation from the ducts or a leak from the roof. Unless it's spray foam, that's some pretty low-hanging fruit. The the harder to find leaks when it comes to roofing are flashing transitions, saddles, and crickets. So kick-out flashings manifest within a wall, and they typically never show any signs of damage. And they're usually reported when Lydia gets the call, there'll be an odor in one room or the other, and people don't think that it's a roof leak. They think there's an odor. Maybe there's a leak at the window, or maybe something was walled up in the wall. Because we work with so many um, home builders, they think something might have been walled up. Um, so this is new construction. If you switch to the next slide. This is a typical production home. The odor was first reported in the bedroom to the left of the circle. In our investigation, and the, the odor then went to the dining room below it. So it started at the second floor and then it grew to, now they're smelling it on the first floor. So when we got there, we inspected it and we found two problems. One, there was a problem at the garage to uh, uh, porch transition and at the corner of the roof tiles that met the vertical wall. And more importantly, there was the telltale kickout flashing at the top. And we were relatively confident that it was the kickout flashing at the top that started the nuisance odor problem. And it wasn't until we opened the wall up that we realized that that long-term leak led to deterioration of the exterior sheathing that led to the second leak starting. So we had one leak that caused damage to the second leak, and it was a colossal mess. This was maybe 11 months they were in this house. So that's the water coming from above to right at the floor line. And that water was hitting the floor. And it's not typical for it to do this unless it's pretty substantial. And in this case, there was a second water intrusion in that hole to the floor where there was a transition between the front porch and the corner and the garage roof. That whole transition was leaking because the, the exterior sheeting rotted out. If you go to the next slide, you'll see the hole at the top. That's where the kickout flashing was leaking and coming down. Okay. So a nuisance odor turned out to be water intrusion from a, a roof flashing failure, and uh, we showed up as a nuisance odor. And this is this is very common in new construction. We can go to the the next one. And there you can see the the whole wall. Interesting, John Hall. Any any thoughts on this? Any comments? No, I, I just again, you, you know, I don't do much residential, but I certainly see that as as a as a uh, result of negligent flashing installations and from day one. Absolutely, see it all the time. Go to that last. Uh, uh, picture if you would i don't run into too much tile roofing john but it's that right there 
it might be a little tougher to put the kick out flashing in place. So it seemed like they'd be more apt to skip it. So that it's not more difficult because all of that comes first. So no matter what the, the roofing material is, flashing, flashing transitions and kick out flashing all goes in first and it's never, it should never be in the way, but do you see the stucco? <laughs> the the roof sheeting oh, through of it. <laughs> <laughs> so there there's not much sheeting left there. Wow. Let's go to the next one, John. There's that transition on that same house. That's that lower transition rotting out. Next That's line. It. All right. Got another one. Let's do this one. Yep. Keep going. Go ahead, John. Go to the next one. Okay, here we go. So if you're familiar with stucco, you see where they did all the caulking on this? Mm-hmm. That's called mid-wall weep screen. That's where water is intended to exit the building if it gets behind the stucco on the second floor. And they've now closed that door, which means that all of the water that's getting behind the stucco from the kickout flashing now has nowhere to go but inside the house. So that all had to be removed. So that's where they thought it was coming in because they actually saw water coming out. It's amazing how many times people tell me they saw water coming out somewhere, so they plugged the hole thinking that's where it went in. No, that's not how it works. If the engine is coming out of the tunnel, you need to go to the other side of the tunnel and find where it went in. So in this case, yeah. Now, they actually did uh, caulk the hell out of the kickout flashing. If you go to the next picture, you'll see. But they didn't caulk in the right location. So go to the next picture. I think we'll see the inside. In this particular case, we used our probes. We found it. Um, Our restoration contractor had already used thermal imaging and surface scanning to point out that there was no moisture in the wall. Now, if you look at the right to the right of the window, there's five foil insulation. So you've got three quarter inch furring strips and you've got foil insulation between the drywall and the block. The thermal image camera is not going to see beyond that reflective foil, period. So you, you throw that out. Surface moisture measurements of the drywall that isn't wet is not relevant. You throw that out. So to make our point, we simply removed everything and we had the boys add water and then the wall reached saturation. So saturation for us is when liquid water flows out of the building material because it's reached its capacity. So I think the next picture shows water flowing out of the block. That's saturation. Water is now flowing out of the block. But if you look, there's also efflorescence. It has been flowing out of that block since the roof was put on. Again, that's new construction, uh, nuisance odors, and it's a substantial leak. And this is low-pressure, low-volume water added to the roof, and it runs down the roof naturally, and it flowed right into the house. Hmm. Next picture. So I threw this one in there just because uh, I I don't want anybody to forget about dead valleys. Uh, Dead valleys, um, crickets, and saddles behind chimney are a big deal. The uh, dead valleys require a a cricket to kick water out beyond the vertical wall, and they're far too often cut three, four, six inches short of the end of the wall, and that wicked transition leads to the following slide. Yeah, let's show people what you're talking about. So there's the dead valley. Water comes down. Um, I don't ever walk up to a house without looking for dead valleys and then looking inside for the telltale sign. Next picture. This one manifested in the garage. So obviously there's a ceiling leak. Obviously there's a problem. In this case, it wasn't finding the problem. It was in correcting the problem 
which involves removal of the, the shingles, removal of the original short cricket, removal of the stucco and flashing, extending the cricket, reflashing, reinstalling the shingles and the stucco. That's a very costly repair for a small roof leak, but it's better than just adding bull or caulk and having it remanifest. Yeah. But we see these mostly in real estate transactions where you see the dead valley, you see a little repair, and then you look at the roof and you tell them you have an active roof leak. It just hasn't banged its way through the ceiling yet. John, what's that? Is that a piece of wire or metal coming out? Yeah, yeah that's conduit coming down for probably a front porch light. Mm, okay. Next one, John. That's showing the inside of the attic where you look at the, the dead valley. You can actually see where it bumps up to the column. Uh, next one, John. All right, go so, back to the first one, if you would, John. I want to just clarify what a dead, when you talk about a dead valley, John, is it on both sides there? Yeah, there's a dead valley on both sides. This is just a, an outstanding architect. Um, <laughs> we like him because he's good for our future. Yeah. <laughs> as long as he's in business, my son's sons will have work. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next case study. John Hall, any comments there? Mm-hmm. All right, so what do we got here? Mold assessment, categorization, categorization of water first and last. Next slide. Right, so the, the reason I put first and last is this was the first and last time we worked with this, um, with this contractor. Okay. So let's just take a look at the house. It obviously has a new roof and new drip edge. But if you look at that little trimmed window in the front, you get an idea of the condition of this house. It was extremely poorly maintained. The roofer approached the homeowner 13 months after a a named storm. And he approached them basically with a sales pitch that I believe I can get a claim for storm damage on your roof and get you a new roof. Mm -hmm. And they jumped at the chance. In addition, because there were ceiling stains, he believed he could hire someone to categorize the water and possibly get them repairs and improvements to the interior of their home. Hmm. So he was going to bring someone in. The homeowner hired us. We looked at the inside of the house. Go to the next slide. So when we inspected the house, and you'll see some pictures coming up, the roofer changed the drip edge and the shingles but made no improvements to the areas of flashing failure on this home. So the areas that were leaking continued to leak after the shingles were installed. This chimney was leaking extremely bad and it wasn't manifesting much around the chimney. You can see the cobwebs and it kind of gives you an idea of the condition of the home, but at the base of the fireplace on both sides in the next slide, you'll see, that it had been leaking so much. That's a little bit at the top. Look at the cobwebs. The bottom is where we saw the majority of the damage. Let's go to the next slide, John. There we go. Okay. This is long-term damage. And so we did meet with the um, uh, insurance adjuster, and we explained to them we'd like to remove this wall because we really need to see the extent of the damage to the the framing material, see if it's, it's worse than we think. Um, There were several other areas of the house that had roof stains. Some of them were associated with duct sweating. 
Some of them were associated with uh, like the valley was was leaking. Um, and there were a couple of areas that we recommended that we remove some ceilings so we could get in there and better fix the uh, the ducting. And some of it was just, you know, fairly bad off. But all total, we consider this still category two water. I mean, we're not we're not saying that everything in the house is grossly contaminated. And we knew that simply with the interview. We asked the homeowners. So it's been 13 months since this name storm supposedly damaged your house and led to, you know, that event leading to water intrusion, even though we know it wasn't that event, it's ongoing. And I asked them, has anybody in the house been sick due to the water intrusion from the storm or since the water intrusion from the storm? Or has anybody been sick as a, a result of the water damage around the fireplace or the ceiling stains? And they said, no, everybody's fine. So it couldn't be grossly contaminated if everybody's been living there for 13 months and nobody's sick. So we, we provided the uh, adjuster and the homeowner with a minimal protocol to remove a couple of areas. I think if you go to the next slides, you'll see, yeah, this is just the overwhelming amount of contents that were in there. It was a well-lived-in house. Next slide. So lots of stuff everywhere, lots of people living in the house, a lot of occupants. Um, I mean, the house is, is well-lived-in with nobody ill. Next slide. A lot of stuff. Keep going. Here's some ceiling stains. Um, these were primarily due to um, uh, duct condensation, but it is right below a valley, kind of tight. So we wanted to rip some of this out so we could get in there and make some adjustments. Next slide. Another picture of it. Next slide. Same thing here. This is inside a closet. Just a simple uh, ceiling stain. Nothing major. Next slide. Nothing. Next slide. Mm -hmm. So here's the outside, and you can see the fascia wasn't repaired. This is the valley that was in question. Next slide. There's the chimney. The chimney cap was never replaced, and that's where the primary leak is. The flashing around the chimney was never corrected, and you can see there's no saddle or diverter at the top side of this chimney where water was and is pouring into the chimney. And you can see that the stucco on the wood frame chimney is completely failing. So nothing has changed as far as leaks at and around this chimney. Next slide. Here you can see active water coming in. And the next picture is going to be where this roof meets that chimney. Next slide. Nothing corrected. Wow. So at least you have a one-inch gap between the shingles and the stucco stop, but you don't have an adequate kick out and you have a wide open hole that's accepting water. Next slide will show you the upside of the, well, there's a close-up of it. Might take a little bit of water. So here we still have a little bit of a transition. Next slide. Here's the upside where it's just caulk on caulk. And this is the area that was taking the worst beating. And they never even added a, a flashing or a saddle. Nothing. They just, Use the they just reset fire. the clock. In the in the title, we talked about scams, and this looks like you know this roofing contractor was just out to look for insurance money. Right. So now we look at the inside when they called us back for the post remediation. Oh, when we looked at the house for the homeowner, we also noticed that the there was a substantial problem with the air handler. So we moved this freezer. You could smell it when you walked in the room. Next slide. That's what we found under the air handler. Mm. 
So we talked to the adjuster about taking care of this area as well while we were in there setting up containment, just because it should be. <laughs> Next slide. So this is the area of water intrusion or water damage directly associated with the air handler. Next slide. I like the way you put these together. Go ahead. Yeah, so that's the containment. That's the removal. Next slide. Here's where the roof is leaking at the chimney, and you can see where the water drains, and you can see where the water damage is in the area of the fireplace and chimney only. Next slide. We're going to remove that wood to inspect the area left and right of the fireplace, and we're going to contain it. And next slide. Here's that valley that also has the tight area where the AC ducts go across to the main part of the house. So we needed to open that ceiling up, one, um, to check the roof, and two, to fix the ducts that were in there. So we had approval to go ahead and remove that ceiling. Next slide. So you can see we're removing the ceiling, not so much where we knew there was water, but where we needed to, to make the adjustments. Next slide. So this is just an overall view for the adjuster so we can see where the water was going and where we had our two major issues. Next slide. This is what we found. The family had been evacuated. The property had been determined to be grossly contaminated due to category three stormwater. They removed the wall or the ceiling, but not the walls that we wanted to inspect the structure. They threw away a lot of personal belongings uh, based on ATP. Next slide. Next slide. So here's the, the hole that we want, or no, this is a hole that we didn't want removed. So this isn't a vaulted ceiling in the center of the house. And no idea why they opened that up. Next slide. Here's the hallway and you can see they've removed doors and base and all of the flooring in the house was completely gone because all of the flooring had been grossly contaminated from storm cat three water. Next slide. Now there's where we had the problem with the duct. And you can see not only did they remove everything, they painted everything. I mean, half that attic was painted in the ductwork. All for no reason. This is just money spent for nothing. Next slide. Look at all the building material that's removed beyond what we wanted. This is the laundry room where the washer and dryer was. And we wanted the wall between the air handler and the garage removed. And they've gutted this entire area. And all of the flooring has been removed. Next slide. There's where the air handler was. You're now in the bedroom looking into the garage. So they actually have containment separating the garage from the house. And everything in that room has been removed. The flooring is thrown out. They got rid of everything. Next slide. And insurance is covering all this, John? No, that would be the problem. The okay. insurance didn't cover it. Oh, so that leads to litigation between the property owner and the roofing contractor who had a side business as a restorer. So none of this was restored correctly. All of this is chasing category three water based on roof leaks. It's a scam. So you have the approved contract document, which was our protocol, and it was not followed. And all of this took place displacing the homeowners, throwing away personal belongings, discarding all of the flooring, additional building material removal, 
All of that was out the authorization of the insurance company on the assumption by the contractor that ATP alone would guarantee them payment of the claim. Wow. Category three water. I think that might be to the end of it. Next. Got quite a few comments on that, but uh, any more? That's Lydia. <laughs> the rest is Lydia's hand. Yeah. Just they, painted, they painted everything. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're running low on time here. I think we need to go to our roundup. Uh, let's go to the roundup. All right, let's go around the horn. First, John Hall. John, I, I just wonder, um, do you get involved much with insurance-related issues? Some. You know, obviously, um, it's generally related to storm damage on, on large commercial uh, properties. So um, to you know, the extent of what we were just looking at, um, you know, I think you see it more in residential where you have a roofing contractor, like we just saw that they, they feel like they want to, there's this big insurance bucket out there and they're looking at trying to get insurance proceeds contracts and this, that, and the other. And, and they, and they dive into things. They're not qualified, not certified, not insured for all the above. Um, And and we see that, but I see it a lot less in commercial than I do residential for sure. What what are most of your, I mean, you deal with roofing in general, but is it almost, I don't know, 80%, 90% moisture related issues? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you do see, you know, the, the issue with, um, we see a lot of issues with ACs with, you know, the, the sweating of the ducts and, and, you know, this, this, that, and the other. Um, But yeah, it's, it's more moisture, moisture, that's when people call. That's when people pick up the phone and calls when they see stains or, or leaks or things like that. Okay. And John Laplatera, I want to make sure any final thoughts or comments before we bring uh, Pete back on and then Cliff. No, it's, it's always a, a pleasure to be here on the show. I know that the chat lit up and I didn't get a chance to answer any questions. Just Please, a couple of right. quick. The, right. They had the protocol before they, they disregarded it and moved on. The contractor did his own ATP sampling that led to the fiasco. But a pleasure to be here. I love what we do. Just always excited to be here. Well, let's get uh, the Z-Man. Cliff, final thoughts or questions? I thought the white paint looked pretty good, personally. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that's it for me. All right. Let's go to the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. I'm sure you've got a thought or two to wrap things up. Yeah, I got my notes. I first of all, great show, guys. Uh, wonderful case studies, John. I'm glad you got to address a bunch of the questions in the chat. Um, you know, we got uh, we got quite a few guys in the chat who, obviously, very involved in the industry and the standards and all this kind of stuff. Have yep. some strong opinions on this. A um, couple points that I want to make. You know, uh, John T, you made this comment about. Uh, a big majority of this waste is roof and construction of roofing materials. I will tell you, uh, I, I, maybe the roofing materials have surpassed carpet because I remember in the late nineties, early two thousands, carpet was a waste carpet was a huge, uh, issue in the landfills. And in some states, I know this firsthand, certain states around the country and certain county jurisdictions, carpet had to be rolled up and placed curbside uh in front of the homeowner's house for periodic pickup by the cities and the counties they they actually didn't allow 
some of the contractors to actually uh, take them and dump them, which was really kind of strange. But uh, the whole carpet thing was big, and and that's a, there's a lot of that waste. And of course, now the roofing material. So I thought that was interesting that you brought that up. The other thing I want to comment on, from a restoration perspective, and particularly since uh, John, a lot of your stuff went down the road. Uh, John Lapentier, that is, went down the insurance road. Um, you know, for many years, I, as, as some of the viewers know, I, I was a contractor in the San Francisco Bay Area for 20 years, the height of my career. And the California, a lot of things in the industry, restoration industry, start in California. The big ones were the plumbers. And a lot of plumbers and Roto-Rooter guys up to this day have gotten into the restoration business. A lot of that was because restoration companies actually marketed at plumbing shows. And uh, to a certain degree, this has led to a lot of this, these scams and some of this corruption that happens in the industry. That's really a black mark in general. I think in many cases, that's kind of a conflict of interest. And I think that's John uh, Lapater's point with a lot of these roofers are getting in. It's not disclosed. Potentially, it's a conflict. They come in on the roofing thing. And next thing you know, they're, you know, they're gutting the house and doing everything like he did in his case study. But uh, I will tell you the one thing with the roofers, the roofers are actually an, an alternative market that a lot of restoration contractors would market to, including some of the home builders. And the reason for this is they have very large deductibles. And in many cases, they're self-insured outside of catastrophic losses. So they actually need to know good, reputable contractors, that mitigation guys that can come in. It's a home builder, you know, deal with warranty claims when the house is still in a warranty. But with the roofers, the big thing in the West Coast or in any region when it's the what I call the non-rainy season. That's when all this roofing activity takes place. And what we found is that a lot of these roofers are kind of, um, they don't pay attention to the weather reports and they're very cavalier in doing any protection and cover-up. Some of the largest projects that I ever had as a contractor in California were freak rainstorms in the summer, which was against the rainy season. We're talking complete high schools, one in San Jose, a famous university in, in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay. Their entire bookstore got flooded. And let me tell you the other thing that happens with these, particularly the commercial roofers, and John T., you're probably aware, they don't always take protective measures in order to protect the tracking of the tar and all that. And when they work in these high-profile jobs, one of the projects I personally was involved with was trying to get tar stains out of the marble in the city hall in San Francisco back in the Wow. 80s that was tracked up by a lot of these roofers actually uh even the reputable ones that have mistakes and they need good contractors that can basically handle the work that ne never goes to the insurance so for a lot of the restoration guys who are on this call who are going to look at the blog and do that you know those are areas uh, i think if, if ethically uh, the guys they, they actually probably need some help um the other thing that came up in the blog and of course our buddy Ed light put this in there about the waterbeds i will tell you when I first moved to California, the waterbed industry, they actually couldn't get liability insurance. There was a lot of work uh, for some of these problems. As a matter of fact, many of the apartments, particularly, they wouldn't allow waterbeds on the second floors. And if you had a waterbed, you had to pay like a double deposit in order to get in there because they were breaking all the time. And eventually they've cleaned that up. And I think they're probably insured now, but they're very, very common. I will tell you, for any of you guys on here who do any of the ABRA work and the bio cleanup, one of the worst projects I've ever had in my life was uh, 
was one of those incidents on a waterbed and it was on the second floor. And I don't have to tell you as, as that, as that red water kind of went through the ductwork, it, it looked like a scene out of a horror movie in the basement. And it actually happened on a new year's Eve. I happened to be on call. Um, I, I had to leave the party and uh, go handle that. Um, the other thing too, and uh, Cliffy, I'm going to give a little plug for the Z man. So, uh, um, quite a few of those case studies involved odors and all of you guys in IQ industry and business know that odors is usually kind of the number one indicator when people there's a problem in a building they smell something that's not right whether they're sick or not nobody likes an odor in a building and um, so understanding that the olfactory and all of that which is something that really Cliff has uh, made his bones in the very early in his career and even to this day I think he's the grandfather of odor and apparently he's working on some new stuff on odor detection that i think is uh, going to be out there over the next several months at some industry events on odor detection i think this will be something which will be fabulous for the indoor air quality and restoration industry is uh being able to differentiate different types of odors and uh, having an understanding of odor is an important part of anyone who does uh, investigations like third-party work and 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 knowing that and uh and i uh, and anyway my friend and our and your co-host, Mr. Radio Joe Cliff, is is still, in my opinion, the leading authority on this topic. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if he wants to share anything on that, but anyway, I figured I kind of get it out there because I, I don't know, I, I just can't help myself because I just love the guy and uh, and the and the other <laughs> stuff is really important. So anyway, we ran a little bit over, but you know, anytime we do these case studies, we almost always have to figure we're going to run a little bit over because they're you know so important and good learning lessons. And obviously the audience loves them. We get a lot of chat log. And uh, anyway, I, I just appreciate the time that the guys put into doing this, uh, these studies. I think it's starting to kind of become a hallmark of the show lately. So anyway, with that, um, you know, wish everybody a, a great weekend. I know next week we're all, you're we're doing a flashback Friday. We're taking a long Memorial Day weekend. The summer is upon us. The country's starting to open up. I think it's great. A bunch of you guys on here are going to, Looking forward to seeing you in June at the Gaylord at the RAA 75th. And uh, there's just a lot of exciting stuff happening. And there's a lot of great shows that are coming down the pike. I mean, Joe, we've been already, we got shows booked in June. We got a couple in July. And, uh, you know, we even have some in the pipeline that we're going to roll over to after Labor Day that we're working on. So there's a lot of really good stuff going on. And uh, and and like you, Joe, I, I just appreciate the. Uh, all the loyal listeners that kind of call in every week and participate in the show. So anyway, uh, th thanks guys. Right. I'll turn it back we over to you. appreciate you, Pete. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Pete helped us pull this one together, the Moisture Mob shows. And I want to thank John T. Hall for joining us. I know you had to kind of rearrange a few things to get here. And we really appreciate that, John. And of course, John Lapoter, who's been with us from the beginning, John. Uh, always great to have you. And, uh, your lovely wife, Lydia, join us, uh, although she just texted us today. We'll have to get her on live one of these days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> love to have her. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls, the restoration industry's global watchdog, Pete Consigli. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and sponsors. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.